This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Hope you've had an amazing weekend and what a weekend it was with all the sports. I'm your host, Eggie Dubong, and on the show today, how can the Pacific Voice help Australians in the upcoming referendum? But I think the Pacific shows that there's a whole range of ways that you can ensure that Indigenous peoples have their voices heard and their interests considered uh, on issues that are important to them. Taurus Strait Islanders are questioning why the Australian government is still failing to help them as they continually face challenges due to climate change. It's sad like because they, they're not going according to what was said and what was asked. And Rugby World Cup sees the flying Fijians on track for a quarter-final appearance. That's later in the show, but for more of any of our stories, simply type into your search engine, ABC Pacific Beat. There you can share all these stories across your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Sato Kilman was elected Vanuatu's Prime Minister only a month ago. Already, the veteran politician is facing a major challenge to his power. All eyes will be on Vanuatu's Supreme Court and then Parliament this week as the Prime Minister attempts to fight off a challenge from the opposition. So joining us this morning to take us through all the latest uh, from Port Vila is ABC's reporter there, Leah Lonbu from the Vanuatu Broadcasting Corporation newsroom. With that, I say good morning, Leah. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Leah. Uh, firstly, if we get into it, why is this morning's court ruling uh, by the Supreme Court so crucial to Vanuatu politics? So the court ruling this morning uh, would uh, uh, look at the uh, vacated seat. Uh, the Speaker recently vacated uh, an em- member of parliament, um, member of parliament Bruno Lengon. And yes, uh, can we get a, maybe a little bit of a background of who Bruno Lincoln is? And Leah, why is his future so important for the government of Sato Kilman? Yeah, so um, MP Bruno Lincoln is in the government side and uh, he was um, vacated by the Speaker of Parliament in a recent Parliament sitting. And that uh, has um, decreased the number of government members in the government. To uh, um, so uh, to debate the motion that is before Parliament to be debated today against the Prime Minister. So um, the um, MP that was vacated, uh, he uh, seek the court um, a legal uh, court uh, on this, and that was uh, discussed in court last week. And the decision is to be uh, released today, this morning. Yeah, I believe with uh, Mr. Lengon that he had missed uh, three consecutive sittings. Uh, but they're saying that there is no evidence that the Speaker actually granted him permission to be absent. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So the Speaker's lawyer said there's no evidence of uh, uh, permission from the Speaker to um, uh, give permission for Mr. Lengon to be absent in Parliament. Mm-hmm. And um, the Mr. Lengon has provided, has said he provided letters to the Parliament to state that he would be absent. But according to the law, um, it says that uh, uh, Mr. Lengon needs to get uh, permission 
from the Speaker to be absent. Mm-hmm. Now, the opposition has actually submitted that notice for a motion of no confidence. Are you aware when that will be held? That will be held uh, today at 8.30. So the court will be uh, giving out the um, uh, result of the court case uh, at, at 8 a.m. And then the sitting is to be held at 8.30. Okay, awesome. This uh, morning. So, yeah. Thank you for that, Leah. If you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening into Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm speaking to reporter Leah Lumbo on Vanuatu's politics. Leah, let's talk about numbers. How do the two sides, if you're aware, government and opposition, how they are stacking up in terms of numbers? So currently, uh, we know that the opposition uh, has gained numbers since uh, being in camp. So uh, they have uh, 25, uh, around 25, according to the informations we've had and we've collected and also from uh, the government side. But because uh, Mr. Lengon has uh, uh, seat is vacated, so there's, there's going to be uh, some um, disturbance in government's number this morning. Uh, but whatever the um, um that comes out in court this morning will uh, again um, decide what what will happen in in parliament in terms of uh, who has number inside of parliament today. Mm. Do we know why there's just so much instability in Vanuatu politics this year? Um, I think uh, it's it's to do with you know. Um, uh, the continuous, you know, it, it's not a new thing here in Vanuatu. There's always um, this kind of motion against prime minister. There's always instability. And um, it's it's always to do with uh, um, uh, members of parliament wanting to be, um, um, to gain powers or to, to be in, in government. So just, you know, fighting for, for positions. Mm. Uh, I'm wondering, though, with if Sato Kilman was to be gone, Leah, could there be a possible candidate to run Vanuatu then? Any names being thrown around? We, we haven't heard that, but, yeah, there's a possibility that, yeah, there, there would be a new prime minister if um, the um, motion today goes in the favour of the opposition bloc. Leah, I'd love to know, what's it like? trying to track or keep track of Vanuatu politics. Uh, Other groups often open to talking to the media, uh, whether there's press conferences, even when it comes around media releases. What's what's your take been on uh, everything that's been happening there in Vanuatu? Well, it's usually uh, for us um, uh, in the media, we go after the leaders to talk to us. Sometimes they um, are not open to uh, share information. Um, especially uh, because they're trying to, you know, keep the information secret to do with, you know, all the negotiations they are doing uh, in terms of gaining numbers in parliament. Uh, So it's sometimes hard for us to get information from them, uh, to talk to them. Uh, But, uh, um, yeah, it's just, yeah, not easy, not really easy to, to get the politicians to really speak to us. I suppose that'll probably be the case for today, though, once everything is known. Is that correct? Yeah.
<laughs> Leah, look, we just want to say thank you very much for your time this morning, just to give us a little bit of an insight of what's been happening uh, and keeping us up to date. Hopefully we can catch up with you next time. Thank you. Uh, that, of course, is ABC's reporter there, Leah Loambu, from the Vanuatu Broadcasting Corporation newsroom here on Pacific Beat. Now, in less than two weeks, Australia will hold a historic referendum that will decide whether its First Nations people should be recognised in the Constitution. The proposal seeks to set up what's been called an Indigenous voice to Parliament. But how unique is it, and what's the situation elsewhere and in the Pacific? Are there political bodies that help Indigenous peoples to be heard, and how do they compare to the Australian proposal? Dubrovka Volada investigates. Unlike Australia, New Zealand set the basis for Maori political representation way back in 1840 with the Treaty of Waitangi. There, Maori make up about 17% of the population and they have seats reserved for them in Parliament. Professor Maria Bach specialises in Maori studies at Victoria University in Wellington and says the reserved seats are vital. It's been really crucial for us as a country, not just for Māori. And I think that's the kind of key part of this as well for us here in Aotearoa, is that what supports, you know, Māori to have trust and confidence in the system, and in particular when that's, you know, our human rights are being upheld, actually that supports everybody to have a greater confidence in the system. Nowadays, New Zealand's First Nations people can vote on a general or Māori electoral roll. Professor Bach says there are currently seven Māori representatives in Parliament. They're members of Parliament, so they sit in the House and they make decisions in the same way that any representative does there. While the system makes sure that Māori perspectives are heard, it's different to the proposed Australian model. What's important about the Māori seats is that they are in the parliament. So they can actually vote on laws, they can be in government, they can be cabinet ministers, and they can have some real political power in that sense. Dr Harry Hobbs from the University of Technology in Sydney is a constitutional lawyer and an expert in Indigenous treaty making. The voice to parliament in the Australian context is going to be an advisory body to parliament, so it's not going to be in parliament. They'll have no ability to make laws or to vote on laws or introduce bills. They just provide advice and representations to the parliament and government when they are debating laws that affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. The referendum on the Indigenous voice to Parliament will be held on October 14th. Australian citizens will be asked if they want to change the country's constitution to recognise the first peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. The voice would tell the Parliament what it thinks about matters of importance to Indigenous peoples. But it would act as an advisory body only, holding no power to change or veto laws. Dr Hobbs says Indigenous Australians are in a different situation to those in other countries. There are lots of bodies that uh, all across the Pacific where there is an opportunity for Indigenous peoples to have some influence over laws and policies that affect them directly. Generally, they relate to customary issues or issues particularly that relate to culture or 
more directly affect the Indigenous people of the region. Australia is obviously differently situated because of the proportion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples is much lower in the population. It's about 3 to 4%. And so it, it's quite different in the way that it could work in, in New Caledonia, obviously, or in Fiji. In New Caledonia, about 40% of the population are Kanak. Dr. Hobbs says its customary Senate listens to the concerns of its people. There's a customary Senate that is made up of Kanak people, and that has to be consulted by uh, the relevant authorities on issues that relate to Kanak identity, particularly matters of customary civil status and customary lands. And that's another similar uh, like representative or voice model. Similarly to the proposal in Australia, it has an advisory role only. I think that can be compared more directly to the voice. So it's a bit more like a body that can advise parliament and government rather than necessarily make laws. There are other Pacific bodies that advise states on traditional affairs, but were developed for mainly indigenous societies. Associate Professor Litea Meosevambu from Western Sydney University has researched indigenous governance and policy in Fiji. In Fiji, the indigenous voices is usually heard through what we call the Great Council of Chiefs. The GCC was disbanded in 2007 after military coup by Frank Banimarama, who accused it of interfering in politics and inciting racial tension. The current government has made the decision to reinstall the body that was first introduced in British colonial times. Its leaders have said the modern incarnation of the council will promote multicultural, not just indigenous Fijian values. Associate Professor Mia Sivambu says it's responsible for bringing the concerns of the indigenous people, which make up the majority of the population, to the attention of the government. Great Council of Chiefs would be the body that actually talks to the government or the state about the issues that's happening within the districts. Vanuatu also has a chiefly system. It's without formal powers in parliament, but it must be consulted about traditional governance issues. Dr Hobbs says while the systems are different, the Pacific region is a prime example of how our voice could work. A lot of the debate in Australia is that this is brand new, this is unique, this has been, you know, it's a scary proposition. But I think the Pacific shows that there's a whole range of ways that you can ensure that Indigenous peoples have their voices heard and their interests considered uh, on issues that are important to them. That's Dr. Harry Hobbs ending that report by ABC's Dubrovka Volada. A year has passed since the United Nations delivered a landmark decision finding that Australia had violated the rights of Indigenous people by failing to act on climate change. It was a huge win for the eight Torres Strait Islander claimants who took their complaint to the UN. But more than 12 months on, Islanders say the government is still uh, failing to protect them from rising seas. Marion Farr reports. When Yesay Mosby went to the United Nations to complain about Australia's inaction on climate change, he was hoping for a solution. For us here on, on the low-lying islands, to get our seawalls up and running, like to get our seawalls fixed and so forth. But one year after the government was found to have violated his people's human rights, Yesay says not much has changed. As each time passes... More land is being washed away. Living on Masig Island in the Torres Strait, he fears the impact of rising sea levels is becoming more apparent every day. We've just lost two big giant trees, which is 
landmarking boundary trees of certain families. For him, it's a painful sight to see. Especially when you are connected to that particular family and those trees, knowing the significance of those trees, it's um, hurtful and sad. Yesa is one of eight Torres Strait Islanders who took their concerns to the United Nations Human Rights Committee in 2019. In September last year, the committee ruled that Australia had failed to protect their right to enjoy their culture and be free from arbitrary interferences with their private life, family and home. The committee recommended the government address the issue by compensating the claimants and by committing more funding to adaptation measures, particularly seawalls. Yesay Mosby says that hasn't happened. It's sad like because they're, they're not going according to what was said and what was asked. In a statement, lawyer for the Torres Strait 8, Sophie Marjnak, says Australia will not be legally compliant if it refuses to pay compensation. The government is failing its legal obligations by rejecting the committee's finding that the claimants should be compensated by their government. It's also clear that the communities of Zenedavkes will need far greater commitment from the Australian government in order to adapt and to retain their cultural connection to country. In a statement provided to the ABC, a spokesperson for the Attorney-General's Department said the committee's views are not binding under international law. A spokesperson for Australia's Department of Climate Change and the Environment said the government pledged $15.9 million to building a Torres Strait Climate Centre. The centre is being co-designed with local people after calls for an approach that will combine science and traditional knowledge. But Yesay Mosby says that's not what the claimants asked for. Everything was done behind closed doors, behind our back. We didn't even know nothing. The government also established a $40 million Torres Strait infrastructure package in October last year, but councils have to apply to access the scheme. Professor Kristen Lyons is a sociologist from the University of Queensland who has followed the case closely. You know, we saw really clearly in New York last week with the Climate Ambitions Summit that the call for centering rights as part of attending to the climate crisis continues to carry weight. Centering rights is absolutely what we need to do. She says the government has taken some positive steps in response to the UN case. I think a great step forward is seeing the climate change minister Chris Bowen visit the Torres Strait. I think that represents a significant departure from the prior government and, of course, that dominant culture of climate denialism. But she says actions are still falling short. It's very clear, listening to the group of eight who, who've led this campaign and this success, that their expectations are much greater than the financial investment that has been made to date. For Yesa Mosby, he wants to see better collaboration to be grassroots level with us and move with us, move with the people. Both of the knowledge, what they have and what we have, can solve a problem. Yesai Mosby, a Zinadaf Kiz, a traditional owner from Masik Island, ending that report from Marion Farm. Now don't go anywhere, because up shortly we will have your news rep with producer Carl Evans here on Pacific Beat. What's it like for those on the front lines of science across the Pacific? Come find out on our new series, Pacific Scientific. Join us for Midnight Hunts. Put this one right there. <laughs> I didn't even see that one. Trek to remote villages. Is there someone giving birth? Yes. And climb up volcanoes. We're standing seven metres above where your home was. Get a glimpse of science's lives across the region. 
Pacific Scientific, Mondays at 3.30 p.m. PNG time, right here on ABC Radio Australia. Yes, welcome back to Pacific Beat. It is that time where we head around the region to get the latest on what's happening. And of course, who brings that to us? None other than producer Carl Evans. How are you going this morning? Oh, I'm well, Aggie. Uh, a little you had a bit good weekend? Too much football and a little bit too much beer, I think. But, uh, but no, feeling well. How about yourself? Uh, I am good. I'm glad that uh, we had an extra hour sleep. Oh, we did. That's all I'm happy about. <laughs> It didn't actually help me as much as I thought it would, to be honest. I would anything kind of mess with me. <laughs> yeah, let's see how we end off today, but let's get into our headlines here. Uh, police are investigating uh, after the home of a New Zealand election candidate was invaded. What's the latest? Yeah, so Māori Party candidate Hannah Rafiti Mapai Clark uh, had her home invaded, vandalised, and was then later threatened in a letter which was left behind uh, at her property. So this was reported by RNZ and uh, followed a statement from Miss Clark Clark uh, last week. She said the attack was premeditated uh, and politically motivated and uh, and that danger on the campaign trail had been increasing as a result of race baiting and fear mongering from, uh, from rival parties. Wow. What has the response been though? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Miss Clark, uh, it looks like she's squarely pointing the finger at right-wing parties for the attack, uh, which New Zealand First um, leader Winston Peters has not surprisingly strongly dismissed. Um, the co-leader of Miss Clark's Maori party said she was outraged and had been seeing more abusive behaviour uh, in this uh, this election than ever before. And that does appear to be backed up um, by several other candidates who've spoken out, including one Labor candidate, Angela Roberts, who said she was actually slapped uh, last week uh, while attending a debate. So yeah, tensions are very high. Um, yeah, look, which is really worrying so close to an election, which is obviously going to be on October 14, um, the same day as The Voice, which is, is causing some tension uh, here in Australia as well. Aggie. Uh, Ralph Riganvanu? What has he said? Yeah, well, what's interesting about that, uh, Vanuatu MP Ralph uh, Reganvanu actually saw a post from him this morning saying that uh, a no vote um, in the Australian Voice re- referendum would actually greatly hurt uh, the relationship between Pacific uh, and Australia. So, um, yeah, we haven't heard too much commentary coming out of the Pacific um, in regarding to to, yeah. the, to the Voice referendum. So, really interesting to uh, to read that and. Yeah, more more sadly as well. I think October fourteenth is actually my birthday as well. So oh, look potentially at that. shaping up to be a to be a dark day in a lot of ways. No, absolutely not. Uh, but uh, to do with politics, yeah, it is uh, unfortunate though that this is how it's going at the moment. So we'll keep our eyes and ears on uh, these developing stories. We head to Papua New Guinea because their population uh, has been forecasted to exceed twenty million. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, their population is expected to reach more than 21 million, uh, in fact, by 2050. So that's according to new projections by the National Statistics Office, uh, who said they were based on new information collected from around the country. And according to the projection, the country will reach 15 million by 2023, 18 million by 2040, and 21 million by 2025. Oh, um, is this data going to help the government in any way? Yeah, look, massively. Um, very much in terms of planning, policy making, uh, allocation of funding, uh, things like that. Uh, in fact, according to an article by PNG Facts, the nas- a national statistician actually said the projections were done uh, in response to a huge demand for more updated data. And, uh, and that follows concerns which were aired last year, actually, after a report from the UN suggested PNG's population had already exceeded uh, 17 million. So, yeah, look, really 
really important that the gov- the government does have um, good, up to date, uh, a- accurate data, and it looks like they've uh, they've taken steps to do that. That's a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> um, as for the weekend, my goodness, it was a grand final for the ages in the NRL last night. I know who won, but who did win? <laughs> <laughs> now, look, I think uh, I don't think this is going to be news to anybody, but uh, but yeah, no, Penrith defeated Brisbane uh, in an absolute thrilling uh, come from behind win to capture their third straight NRL premiership. Uh, Samoa Stephen Crichton and uh, Moses Leota very much at the centre of it all, both scoring tries to help their club uh, dig themselves out of a 24-8 to deficit. That's about when I went to bed, uh, as a matter of fact, Aggie, which I'm, yeah, very much regretting now. Um, Broncos, they were just on fire on the back of those uh, three tries from, from Ezra Mann. I thought they had it they had it all wrapped up, but um, according to the highlights, which I watched this morning, um, Penrith are very much able to dig themselves out uh, with 20 minutes to go, and Nathan Cleary uh, obviously scoring scoring the match winner and cementing his team as probably the best team of the uh, of the modern era. Would you agree with that? Yes, and amen to that, uh, Carl, because if there was ever a comeback, that was the comeback last night that we were after. So well It was. Done. Probably the best grand <laughs> NRL grand final I've seen since the Cowboys got over. Actually, yeah. Brisbane again, <laughs> which was that back in 2015. So, yeah, look, condolences to Brisbane as a city, actually. They uh, obviously lost the NRL grand final and and. and just lost the AFL yes. grand final as well. So, yeah, I imagine it'd be a pretty flat uh, atmosphere in Brisbane at the moment. So, um, yeah, look, as a native New South okay. Welshman, I have no sympathy. But Someone yeah. has to lose. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but look, uh, just quickly, I understand a Hollywood star has landed in PNG. Yeah, that's right. So Will Smith, uh, of all people, was actually spotted uh, landing in the country on Saturday about 3pm in the afternoon. Uh, he was accompanied by six people and is currently uh, on an island in New Ireland where he's shooting a, an upcoming movie. So, yeah, he's very much kept a low profile since that infamous um, Oscars incident. So I'll be interested to see what uh, yeah what, what he comes out with. Wow, upcoming movie. Obviously, we didn't get the call, Carl, so that's all right. <laughs> uh, but thank you again uh, for providing us our news wrap for this Monday morning here on Pacific Beat. Mijam Footy. Hosted by me, Sam Wikes. And me, Tenero Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today, and look forward to the next-gen Nisian footy stars. Nisian footy. Nisian footy. Monday afternoons at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. Well, for the past decade, Sulwafi Brianna Fruin has been fighting a, cl- a climate campaign, pushing developed countries to lower emissions and keep global warming below 1.5 degrees. But she believes the campaign is failing, with little substantial change. So she's now urging countries to get behind nations like Tuvalu and Vanuatu to sign a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. I started so young. I started at 11 years old, and I had the, I had the belief then that everything could be solved by world leaders just deciding to wanting to change, and it could be solved within the UN system. Um, my stance has changed now where I, I don't think that that has not been working. We've had many climate conversations. We've had many years of, of negotiations of, of climate um, action in the UN system, and it, it's not moving. It's not working. We're failing at it. And so now I I believe that more civil society action, more outside of the box thinking, 
I guess just more people, more new ideas is is where I feel like the true change is going to come from. Hey, has there been an improvement from any of these countries who may have said, you know, they'll either aid or they'll fund or they'll do better in terms of climate change? There's been very little, very little incremental change that we've seen with countries pledged to, to climate financing. We've seen countries say that they will reach um, 100% renewable energy one day, but I think that's where we're going wrong. It's, it's the one day, right? That there, there is not going to be that one day we save the world. That has to be today. And so more than wins, we've just been accumulating failure. Wow. Yeah, that's a big, big uh, call out for those countries then. Have you been able to say that to them directly in a sense? I think young people have been saying this to them for years. At the start of the the very first school strikes for climate that started a, a few years ago, young people have been on the streets and saying, world leaders, you've been failing us. That You say that our emissions are going to halt. You're saying that we're going to be moving towards a greener, more sustainable planet, but that has not been seen. I mean, in every IPCC report, we keep on saying that we aren't meeting targets. The, the, the actions are not meeting our words. I want to head into this whole fossil fuel non-proliferation treating. One, why you are part of this and why the rest of the world should support it. Yes, absolutely. The Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty is an initiative that has scaled across the earth. We have campaigners in different countries, and really the the heart of the the reason why this initiative was put together was acknowledging that the fossil fuel industry is at the heart of this crisis. It's the hand that's feeding climate change, yet there's no mention of fossil fuels in the Paris Agreement. There's no mention of oil, coal, and gas in the recent COP negotiations. It's like we're fighting this thing and no one's saying the name of the thing we're fighting. No one's wanting to call out these industries that by the second are making millions. They're getting government subsidies from so many of these governments that are promising us that they're acting on climate, but yet they go in back rooms and give money to the industries that are causing climate change. And so the uh, treaty came about when a group of people sat down and said, you know what, we need to think outside of the UN system and we need to put together a treaty like we have, the humans have done this before with tobacco, we've done this before with nuclear weapons, and we need to to get our governments to sign on and say that we will no longer expand the fossil fuel industry. It sounds like a really big task to have to Mm -hmm. try, you know, and actually see some movement in this. Have Mm -hmm. have most of our maybe Pacific countries, our Pacific leaders, are they on board with your fight? Yes. So for the Fossil Non-Proliferation Treaty, it is Pacific leaders that have pushed this forward. It is through the government of Tuvalu and Vanuatu. They are the ones who were the first to endorse the treaty and lobby other governments, their other um, diplomats and other po- political friends to try and sign on. So it was the Pacific nation that was first at the table to say, yes, this is what we need. We need an end to the era of fossil fuels. And then not too long after that, um, just recently, California signed on, which I believe is the sixth largest economy in the world. So that is a, a big deal for a, a, a large economy like California to sign on to this treaty. And then last week during the UN General Assembly, the government of Timor-Leste as well as Antigua and Barbuda would come on and endorse the treaty. And is it just a matter of needing this treaty to make it stop or what else needs to be done? The fight for climate justice is like a game of rugby, right? Everyone has different positions on the field and everyone needs to be playing 
their position correctly. And so the treaty is just one of those, those rugby players on the field trying to fight the other team, which is climate change. And so we can't just put all our eggs in one basket and say that this treaty is going to save everything. This treaty is going to be one of the players that help push our game forward. But along with this, there also has to be climate financing so that we're adapting to the already damaging um, impacts that's happening to our islands. At the same time, we have to be having this simultaneous conversation about a just transition. So what exactly does a shift to renewable energy, to solar power, to wind power look like? So there's many things that have to be happening all at once for us to be able to win this game. And that's Pacific Youth Climate Activists and Environmental Advocate, Sulwafi Brianna Fruin. Pacific hip-hop dance crew, The One Squad, made waves by placing fourth at the Hip-Hop International Dance Competition this year. Now, Donga's first ever dance crew, Onion Squad, competed at the World Supremacy Battlegrounds and International Street Dance Championships in Sydney. Held over the weekend, the competition is one of the longest-run street dance comps in the Southern Hemisphere since 2004. I caught up with the team ahead of the first night of competition being here it's really hitting us now that we're here and it's you know it's time to turn it up um so we're really excited to perform again where did it all start for your team i mean firstly what's the meaning behind the name itself onion squad (laughs) (laughs) so onion squad was uh we came together from a youth group called icon back in 2015 we started it was just a collection of different boys from different villages normally back in tonga you like your crew is from one village you know and for us we were we were collecting um from different villages and we were very different people from different backgrounds so we kind of came up with onions because of the different layers that we have in our crew but what brought us together was dance so that's how we Mm -hmm. came up with onion squad it's been a few years, though, but, you know, since you last sort of performed or we've seen anything from you guys. What have you been doing during all this time? Um, we were supposed to go compete around this time, but unfortunately lockdown happened. So we kind of just broke off and everyone was just trying to work around that time because, you know, it was hard times. And then the eruption happened as well. So that was quite um, depressing. But yeah, everyone just kind of uh, grew out of it, moved on um, from there. Uh, a lot of us moved overseas and um, the original, me and Manu were the, the ones left. But Mati's our first um, recruit. So we're trying to build that back up. It's amazing to have her here as well, just to experience what we have experienced as well. Uh, Mati, I have to ask, because yes, last time your crew was just boys. So to yep. have first female in the crew, what's that like for you to be joining the team? Uh, it's very great. So Mati's the youngest we've ever had as well. So this is all very new to her. She's an athlete. She does uh, track, rugby, everything. Uh, she's our trainer. Uh, Manu, can I ask why just three of you? Were there no other dancers that wanted to join? After the lockdown was lit, well, we had like three boys, but... One left to Fiji because of school, but then so we have to recruit to do another audition. That's how we got Muddy into to the onion squad. Yeah, first time for your crew, first time ever as a Tongan dance crew to compete at the World Supremacy Battlegrounds. What does that mean to you three? I think definitely a dream come true. We actually kind of, when we came up dancing, we this is one of the competitions we've been watching, you know. And a lot of crews from New Zealand, Australia, that we follow and we love, a lot of dance legends have participated here. Um, a lot of Filipino crews as well. And um, just being here is 
unreal like just to experience this and to be able to dance on the same stage it's amazing you know how proud we are Tongans um and we're just very grateful that we get to be the dancers that carry the flag on this competition and we'll make sure to leave a mark what does the dance scene look like back in Tonga how supportive are they of you guys being in this type of space before it was kind of hard because of you know the tradition and stuff, but I think really I'm, I'm right now it's really accepting. I mean everyone at, in Tonga is doing TikTok and stuff, you know. <laughs> but the dancing kind of died, and that's why we're here. We're trying to make some noise that to bring it back up again. Like how how would you encourage the kids back in Tonga like to not be shame, not be ma, but be like yeah, come along. Yeah, I think it just starts with you know how we are as Tongans with ma. I think it's just firstly just breaking that um, shame, uh, mind, all of that, um, and just truly go for what you like believe. So chase after your dream, you know, go after it. You never know. Speaking to Onion Squad members Camille Dangitao, Devita Vakasi Egi, and Paul Johansson, it was a hard competition, but congrats to the team who placed fifth. To sports now, the flying Fijians are on track to a quarter-final appearance at the Rugby World Cup after defeating Georgia 17-12 on Sunday morning. It was Fiji's first match after a one-week layoff following their standout win against the Wallabies. And it was a nail-biter. Among those watching was Fijian Naomi Roberts, a former Australian Wallaroos and a member of the Blue Wiggers, a Fiji super fan group with that I say Bulavinaka. Bulavinaka. <laughs> Thank you, Naomi, for joining <laughs> us uh, this morning. Now, I know you were watching from Australia, um, but your members of the Blue Wiggers were in France. Yes. Um, well, you know, as a Fijian by heart, that is always your team. And um, Australia is also up there. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a hard one, but um, we still cheer hard for both teams. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, were you on the edge of your seat with that Georgia match? I mean, it looked like it could have gone either way. Oh, that that was a, a, a nail-biter, literally a nail-biter. It's um, like a win. We finally was happy with the win, and um, I, we couldn't explain that that game was just um, – it was good for rugby at the end of the day. Rugby is the winner, but to be a Fijian supporter, I think we were just um, hoping, praying for that win. <laughs> what do you think happened to Fiji's form? I mean, it was a very different performance uh, than what we saw against Australia. You know, in hindsight, we probably some people might say that uh, one week break was probably not good because they were on a good roll, and uh, and some then other people might say, well, they needed a break to come out stronger. So either way, I think um, George. Fiji, uh, Georgia played like Fiji played when they had to beat Australia. So Georgia just came out trying to prove something that they, they, they needed a win too. But even though they've been out of the top two fight, they, they still have, um, a bigger heart to show the world that, uh, Georgia is still a country to be, um, yeah, to be on the world stage. Mm. So I, I think it was whoever was hungrier on the day. Fiji probably just, um, I thought because they they came in 
thinking we just need a bonus point to make it. A win is still a win, whereas Georgia was like, yeah, on I don't know, it was just too hard. <laughs> There's a vision supporter watching. <laughs> well, I'm chatting to Naomi Roberts, uh, a founding member of the Blue Wiggers Fiji uh, Rugby Supporters Group here on ABC Radio Australia. Uh, Naomi, what's your plan for the quarterfinal? Will there be a big gathering of uh, Fijians where you're going to watch the match? You know, there is, like, um, on the news, I think a few days ago, Australia... Is has still got a chance mathematically, and they are proving that they still have a chance to go through. So we haven't. When we get there, we'll get there because we really um, need to win against Portugal um, next week. But if they do win and uh, go through, there will be a huge um, yeah uh, get together for everyone to just watch the game and. Um, and and hope for quarterfinal. Yeah. What do you think, though, the Flying Fijians are doing well in this tournament? Like, what areas do you think they need to work on? Uh, I, I think they just the the games they've been um, we've been fortunate for Australia to including them um, as a um, andrua when they came to play in the Super W, and also for the teams that have been um, most of the players that are playing in. Um, the overseas competition in Europe and uh, New Zealand and other places. So I think they're pretty up there. It's all mental game now. Whoever has got the the stronger mental um, capacity during that last game will win because they are all on the same level now. They know what they have to do. Um, they've they've uh, shown the world that they can defend well. They've got set pieces that uh, Fiji was never known for because we were always known to just throw the ball and and uh, they're still entertaining. But the set pieces are so perfect now. They you can see that they are matching the the top tier nations, which meant that um, yeah, at the end of the day, it's the mental who's got the mental fitness to go the further um, f- a little further than uh, what the opponent has. Yeah, do you feel the flying Fijians have finally come of age? I think so. I think so. It's, you know, like they were saying, um, the nations that have been playing more tests are the ones that are really showing, which is why Tier 1 was always better, I think, because they have so many more games than our Tier 2 tier two, um, countries. So, and, and it shows that Fiji had just played a little more game than what they used to. That's why they are coming of age now. Mm. And like for Tonga and Samoa and our other Tier 2 countries, the only difference is because they never been um they they haven't got the same tests or or more games like the other countries have and and Fiji was just fortunate to to have played more games in the last 2 3 years yeah just speaking um there on Donga we've just heard that South Africa mm-hmm. has beat uh Donga so again your thoughts around what needs to be done for our tier 2 teams for Donga and even Samoa just more tests, if they can be given more tests, like more games to play. Um, and, and that is, um, I think, the only way forward is to be more money uh, to be given out to these countries so that they can travel more and, and come and play the bigger nations, you know, like, and not just playing the other tier two or even, even if there's a tier three countries. We need to be playing consistent games with the tier one. And also if IRB can spread a bit more money out to these um, countries to come and play more games.
That sounds like the plan that we need to <laughs> head uh, towards. So. No, me, but uh, look, all the best. I know we are looking for that. Uh, looking forward toward the, uh, that quarterfinal game. Uh, but thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you for the opportunity, and have a good um, yeah, good weekend. No. Uh, long holiday. <laughs> no worries. Public holiday. Sorry. Yeah. That, of course, is Naomi Roberts, member of the Blue Wiggers uh, fan group, a rugby supporters group, and she's a former Australian Wallaroos. Indigenous communities are well on their way to eliminating an eye disease that's been causing blindness for decades. Advocates say it's an example of why a voice to parliament could be effective in closing the gap for health. National Health reporter Alison Brandley has the story. In this Alice Springs school, children are getting a lesson in how to prevent eye infections. It's important because repeated infections with the type of bacteria circulating in some communities can cause the eye disease trachoma. Nick Wilson is trachoma program manager at the University of Melbourne. He says it can lead to scarring and long-term blindness. Australia is the only high-income earning nation in the world where trachoma is still a problem. For decades, trachoma plagued Indigenous people living in remote areas. Nick Wilson says few plans worked. So the university's Indigenous Eye Health Unit consulted with communities. They put together a detailed plan that aimed to end all preventable blindness by keeping patients from falling through the cracks of the health system. Nick Wilson says solutions range from getting transport to medical appointments to a new Medicare item for retinal photos. And all of those areas needed to be addressed at once. Now a decade later, rates of trachoma have fallen from 7% to 3.3%, and trachoma hotspots have dropped from 21 to 3 Going forward, the outlook is good. Nick Wilson says consulting with First Nations community has been crucial. Part of the effectiveness is around having local ownership and local buy-in from that local Aboriginal community-controlled health organisation. And it was about listening to those services. So I think what was critical to the success of the plan was the establishment of regional eye health collaborative groups to come together and to address areas of the patient pathway that might not be working. Having Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations involved in and often leading these groups enabled local ownership and local control and decision-making over what needed to happen. John Patterson is Chief Executive of the Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance in the Northern Territory. He says the success in reducing trachoma is an example of why an Indigenous voice to Parliament is so important to close the gap for health. The sooner you involve Aboriginal communities, you're much better off getting a better outcome. But we don't have the access and the influence and the opportunity to have a say in legislation at the moment. And this is where we see the advantage of the voice. But Warren Mundine from the No campaign says trachoma is an example where coordinating services works and they didn't need a voice to parliament to achieve it. Through the voice process, we're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars here when that money can be better spent actually doing similar things that this health project did. 
Alison Brandley with that report. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow, 6am PNG time. You can also hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Australia, Radio Australia, because news is next and coming up after that is Nisian Daily. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat was produced on the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation.